Hello, and welcome to Spark, a society and politics podcast. I'm your host, Jacob McInnes. For those of you who don't know, we are a nonpartisan committee and part of the Wisconsin Union Directorate, whose goal is to spark discussion on campus and within the community around challenging societal and political topics. We are hoping that by creating this podcast, we can extend the conversations we have outside of the four walls of the union. If you liked what you heard here today, we have weekly discussions on Wednesday nights from 7 to 8 p.m. in the Memorial Union. On Wednesday, October 23rd, we are going to be discussing some of the things talked about here as they relate to diversity on campus. And without further ado, here's our first episode. Enjoy. inaugural podcast, we are sitting down with University of Wisconsin Chancellor Rebecca Blank. Chancellor Blank, thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting me to be part of this first podcast. It's great to have you. I understand that you've bounced back and forth between education and government service. So I'm wondering what drew you to education originally? Well, you know, I always wanted to be a teacher when I was a child. And um, at some point, I was less interested in being an elementary to secondary school teacher and became much more interested in being an economist. Um, so, you know, I, I loved my economics major as an undergraduate um, and then went on and got a PhD in economics um, and followed the academic track, um, you know, which is a mix of both research and education and teaching. And, um, you know, I love universities. You know, they're places where, you know, there's such a wide diversity of topics under discussion. You know, you have these wonderful conversations, all of this interesting stuff that is happening both in the classroom as well as in the laboratory and in people's research. Um, so, you know, I, I loved being at a university and assumed that what I would do is be a professor my whole life. And, um, you know, then I started doing more and more administration. I was running a big research center and raising money for that. Um, and, you know, I was good at that. Um, and I also, in my own economics work, did a lot of economic policy questions. So I got invited to be an economist out in DC for a one-year position um, in the first George Bush administration, had great fun, went back to being an academic, and um, eight years later got invited by President Clinton to be a member of the Council of Economic Advisors, which is the in-house sort of economics advice council for the president. Um, Did that for two years, had great fun, but was clearly going back to the university, and then I went back to become a dean at that point in a public policy school. Gerald Ford School of Public Policy at the University of Michigan. Did that for eight years, had great fun. Um, And I stepped down from that and went to visit Brookings for a year. And while I was there, um, President Obama got elected and I got invited to join the Obama administration and spent the first term, the first four years there in the Department of Commerce. And at that point, after four years, which was the longest time I'd spent in government, it was clear that um, I was ready to go back to a university and I started looking for jobs. University of Wisconsin was available. So, so when you were working for the mm-hmm. Obama administration, granted, very different yeah. than than post secondary education. Mm-hmm. What are some of the greatest takeaways that you had from working in, in I, I guess, in in that specific administration and in administrations of the past? Yeah. Well, I will tell you that um, I, I ended up as the deputy secretary of the Department of Commerce, which is the number two person who is both the chief operating officer and often sort of the chief strategic officer because the cabinet secretary is the outside 
voice. And I, I also ended up being a year as the acting secretary, so I was doing both. Um, it turns out that big public institutions are actually a lot alike. And in some ways, I was surprised at how moving from a large federal agency to a large state agency, one being um, educationally focused, one having a somewhat different mission, um, how similar they were. Um, and in that sense, you know, when you talk about doing education and academics and doing public service, I have to say as long as one is at a state university, those two feel an awful lot alike. They don't feel like different jobs. Um, so, you know, takeaways here about the complexity of these big public institutions, the ways in which, you know, the politics are absolutely as important as, you know, the substance of what you're doing if you're going to keep the agency on track. Um, the difficulty of implementing change, partly because they're complex, partly because you've got a lot of constraints on you that the private sector doesn't have. And I learned a lot, um, both in my time at the University of Michigan and in Washington, about how do you implement change inside different types of organizations. And I'd like to believe that stood me in good stead here as well. So someplace in the far distant future, who wants to do this? Um, well, like said, if you want to be in leadership at these big institutions in certainly a provost job or a chancellor job, you have to come out of the institution, which is to say you have to have established a real reputation as an academic, as a researcher and a teacher, right. and a member of your profession and your discipline. Um, so you know, in that sense, I'm quite typical of many presidents in that I spent almost 20 years being an academic and truly enjoying that mm -hmm. and was not necessarily sitting there thinking, gosh, I want to be chancellor. Why do I have to go teach this class instead? Um, you know, that I, I feel like I sort of got into administration um, a little bit by accident, you know, mm -hmm. and started enjoying it more and more and found it, you know, in many ways, um, you know, satisfying in different ways, but also satisfying. Um, so, you know, my first comment is, if you really want to lead a top-rated research institution, you yourself have to have the credentials in research and academics, right? Mm -hmm. So that's, that's number one. Um, number two is, as an academic, you get very little experience in the management side of things. And, you know, some people are, you know, pick that up a little bit faster. I myself have never had a course in management. Um, I did spend some periods of my life reading different types of things when you needed to learn some stuff you might not know. Um, but, um, you know, every type of experience that you can pick up in terms of um, operating a budget, um, having people who report to you and managing um, direct reports, putting a team together, thinking about change and how you leverage um, aspects of an institution and pull people together and motivate them for change. And, you know, so, so you know, those organizational, understanding organizational strategy is deeply sure. important. Finally, the third thing I say, um, particularly in the leadership jobs, one of the most important things I do is communications. Mm -hmm. And on the one hand, I communicate out. I am the face of this university to the public out there. And you've got to be able to explain to people out there in mm -hmm. the state, in the nation, in the legislature, what the University of Wisconsin is and why they should support it. On the other hand, I'm the inside voice in sense of I am the person who can probably more than any other has a pulpit to talk to staff, faculty, students mm -hmm. here at the university about what's happening out there, how is it changing, how is that impacting our university, and how are we going to cope with that, mm -hmm. right? And why do we have to take this step or change this way or make these budget cuts? Sure. Um, so, you know, experience in public speaking, in communication, knowing who great communication people are so you can hire a great team to do that, mm -hmm. um, all of that is really important for this job as well. All right, we'll shift gears a little bit here. Mm -hmm. 
Historically, there has been controversy about the university's lack of ethnic and cultural diversity. Most recently, there has been some controversy surrounding the homecoming video that was put out. This is not the first time that something like this has happened. Could you walk through some of the actions that are being taken to remediate the feelings around campus that arose after this incident? So, you know, we are a predominantly white institution in a predominantly white state. That is not going to change. Can we do a better job, however, of diversification of our faculty and our student body? Yes, of course we can. And I think five years ago, a number, we had a number of incidents that really brought these issues forward. And um, as a result of that, we put together a long-term strategy um, that a number of people around campus are leading. Um, and you know, it, I, I know that often students arrive and they don't know that anything has happened before. I'm hoping that some of the faculty and staff understand some of the things we're doing and some of the changes that are happening. So let me just mention some of the stuff that we've been working on over the last five years. And, all of this is slow, none of it changes overnight. Um, so on the diversity side, it's really important to have a more diverse faculty than we have. Um, and one of the things that we have done starting this last year is put a substantial amount of money into what we call our Targets of Opportunity Program, which gives um, an impetus to departments to make offers to people who diversify their department. In some cases, that's gender. In some cases, that's race or ethnicity. In some cases, it might be intellectual approach. Mm -hmm. um, we had, I, I think we approved about 40 um, specific hires, and this is the department says, we've identified a person we want to go after. Um, out of that, I believe this year we're going to end up with about 20 new hires. Um, we're going to do this for a number of years, and if we can get 20 new people that diversify this faculty in every year, or maybe more in some years, um, that's going to make a difference in the face of the university. So that's one thing. Um, in addition to that, all of the departments and schools have been asked to develop diversity and inclusion plans. Some of them are further along than others, but I would encourage any students who are in units to talk to their deans and say, um, you know, what is our plan? What are you doing? What's happening inside this unit? Because a lot of things don't happen up here at Baskin Hill. They happen on the ground in the classroom and advising, and that needs to happen within the schools and colleges. So many of them are working on issues there. We've done a number of things to increase training on campus. The, um, our Wisconsin program, which we um, encourage all freshmen in the dorms to go through, um, is a piece of that. We've done training of our TAs um, to try to give them better skills in working in more diverse classrooms. And um, our School of Education here launched something called the Discussion Project, which is a semester-long course for about 25 to 30 faculty at a time that works with them on how do you deal with difficult issues in the classroom? How do you have discussions around this? How do you keep civility? How do you draw people into that conversation? And I've heard very good things about um, that project and where it's going. So, you know, there, there are a number of things that are happening here. We've opened several cultural centers in the Red Gym. Um, in response to student requests for a place where they can gather with others who have their perspective. And, you know, we have to be about both giving people a chance to, you know, a place here that feels like home, as well as encouraging everyone to come back and mix and be in conversation and be in a more diverse setting as well. And both of those are often important. So, you know, that's some list of some, you know, there's, there are other things I can keep going with. but. You know, we have consciously tried to take a number of steps over these last four to five years. Um, we're a big place. There are 66,000 people on this campus when everyone is here. This is bigger than the city of Janesville. 
You know, you couldn't go to the mayor of Janesville and say, I want to make sure that there's never a situation of implicit bias or violence in your community at any point again. You know, I can't enforce that. What I can do with the other leadership and with the assistance of staff, faculty, and students <coughs> is create the opportunities that give people a chance to engage in conversations to think consciously about these issues. Um, and to do that as fully as possible so as many people as possible come into that Shifting gears, the university has seen funding cuts over the years. How challenging is it to maintain UW's standing as a top-tier public university despite these cuts in state fundings over the past decade or so? So, you know, we're not alone in this challenge. Every single public university in the country has seen very substantial cuts in their state funds. And as state-initiated institutions, which in many cases for 100 years were, um, you know, were primarily supported by the state, this has caused an enormous amount of pain on these campuses. Our financial model, as we were using it up until 20 to 30 years ago, has just completely fallen apart. Right? And it's one of the reasons why tuition has increased, because if the state isn't paying, someone has to pay. Right? Um, yet, you know, we've worked hard to keep tuition increases among in-state students quite low yet, relative to out-of-state students, and that's appropriate, given our commitment to the state. So you know, one of the things that I've tried to message to this campus when I came in, and in my first four years, we took, I think, close to 85 to $90 million in state budget cuts in those two budgets together. It was really deep. Um, is that we cannot sit around and wait for the state to realize that we are a shining jewel and forgive us more money. That's just not going to happen because these cuts aren't happening because the state doesn't like higher ed. They're happening because the demands on state budgets have hugely grown in the area of Medicare and healthcare and in the in Medicaid and healthcare and in the area of um, transportation and prisons and K-12 education. And you know we're, we're just there are a lot of other people competing for those funds right now that have really good claims. So the state money, by and large, I don't think is coming back in the near future. That means we have to be more entrepreneurial about what we're doing to generate our own investment funds. And um, you know, we started down, there are a number of things, I can go back and talk if you're interested, in what are some of the things we're doing to generate those investment funds. But um, you know, they, when I say we had about 85 to $90 million in cuts that we had to take, um, we ended up taking about $55 million in those cuts, and the rest we replaced with new money that we were generating out of some other things. And, you know, that, that was painful, but it could have been a lot more painful if we hadn't had some of that additional new investment money coming in. Um, my name is Reagan Eckley, and I am an events director for SOPO. Um, last week, I read an article that stated UW-Madison was ranked last in the Big Ten on sustainability. Um, Rutgers was not included in that um, poll, but I was just wondering what we're doing to help, you know, improve our ranking and our score on that end. Yeah, so um, this last year we did something we hadn't done before. We um, put together all the information to get a, quote, STARS rating. And STARS is a program that assesses sustainability of educational institutions and the practices that they are following. Um, this requires a rather large report putting a lot of information together. And out of that report, we got a silver ranking. Um, which is below gold and platinum, but above bronze. And it's about where most universities start, uh, particularly these big public universities, when they first get this ranking. Um, they assign you a point scale. I don't know how meaningful that point scale is. We're at the bottom of the Big Ten among those others who had stars rankings. The whole reason to do this is less about the ranking, to be honest, than it is about, you know, this, this, this whole report gives us an assessment of 
where are we doing a good job and where do we have opportunities to improve? We, um, a year or two ago, hired a director of sustainability on campus. We had not had that position before, who's also working with a faculty member, Kathy Middlecamp, over in the Nelson Institute, who works on the faculty side of sustainability. And the two of them together are going to take these results and um, bring back a suggestion about sort of what is the priority listing of what we need to be doing over the next three to five years um, around sustainability, which I hope will raise our STARS ranking over time. But, but this whole process of assessment has given us, I think, a much better sense of where we need to focus our resources. And you know, I, I and others here are very committed to making some of those um, focused efforts. Historically, uh, UW-Madison has been a site of several political demonstrations, and students today are just as politically active as they were decades ago. How difficult is it to foster political discourse and free speech on campus, given the rather divisive current political climate? Yeah, you know, a campus is not a institution that can set itself apart from society and build walls around itself. And in fact, we don't want to do that, right? If the campus isn't engaged in, in the community and in the society, we aren't doing our job. But the effect of that is what's happening out there is also happening in here. And um, you know, as you know, there has been a real decline in civil conversation in this country, a real increase in partisanship and political divisiveness, um, and even you know, quite violent hate speech in some cases that um, makes it harder and harder to stand in the middle and say, let's find a way to talk about these differences in a way that we can both listen and both engage in real conversation as opposed to shouting with each other. Now, if an educational institution like the University of Wisconsin can't engage in that type of conversation in the classroom or in other public spaces of the sort that you're doing, we are really failing our mission. But it is harder to do that now than it was 10 or 20 years ago because of this outside environment that, you know, people, students who come here, faculty and staff who come here, you know, anyone who's younger in the last five, 10 years has not seen that type of civil discourse, right? So it's very hard to even know how to model it. Um, but you know, it, it, when, when we talk about you know, working with faculty about how do you teach effectively in the classroom, that's part of what you want to be talking about when, you know, with the work that you're doing, with the work that many others are doing to try to hold um, conversations, presentations, uh, discussions, seminars. Um, that is trying to model this type of behavior. Um, I wish it were easier. I wish I had a magic bullet by which I could, you know, wave and say, no, here, we're going to do it differently. Um, but the best you can do is just keep working on this and just keep modeling and just keep insisting um, that this is important in this institution and people who come out of this institution need to have understood what that type of conversation looks like. And it's one reason why I agree to be on this podcast and why I really appreciate the work that your group is doing because you are exactly about trying to generate those sorts of conversations and that type of model. Last year's Winter Vortex drew the ire of a number of students who had to attend classes on the cold days, even though I think many of them were greatly happy that class did ultimately get canceled one of those days. But we are wondering if maybe you could walk through the decision-making process around deciding to cancel class at an institution like this. Yes. Yeah, so um, unfortunately for those students, I am from Minnesota. And um, so I, I don't have as much sympathy as perhaps someone who grew up in Florida would have for the fact that you have to go to class when it's cold. I mean, you know, that you are coming to Wisconsin and, you know, it's absolutely essential that people have the 
um, the, the winter gear, you know, and, you know, I occasionally want to roll my window down when I'm driving through campus and say, will you put on gloves, you know, on really cold <laughs> days and you see students walking around in shorts or something. But, um, you know, the fact that it's cold is not a reason to cancel class. The question is when it becomes dangerously cold. And um, there's actually um, a metric for this that the National Weather Service uses and that we utilize that says when the wind chill gets below 35 degrees below zero, you should not have people standing outside. And, you know, given the number of students who walk across campus, who, you know, stand on bus stops, et cetera, our metric has been, and, and this has only happened twice, last winter was only the second time, when the temperature, when the forecasted temperature is going to be 35 below or colder, we will cancel class. Um, we don't, you know, now is 30 below cold? Yes, it is. Um, a lot of our students live very close to campus. A lot of our faculty are near campus. And, um, you know, you've got to draw a line somewhere. And, you know, whether that's the right line or not, that is the line that we've been told is the appropriate line to draw. So, so that is why we cancel class at 35 below and not at 25 below. Just out of curiosity, when was yeah. the last time prior to that? Well, it was my first year. It's the first time we'd ever canceled class okay. for um, cold weather. But we had a polar vortex effect that yeah. year. And we had, I think we canceled class for only half a day. At that point, there was a morning that was very cold and then it warmed up by noon. <clears throat> Given your extensive experience in both post-secondary education, public policy and, and government work, what role do you see post-secondary education specifically playing in shaping society and influencing politics? Yeah, it's an interesting question. So um, there are a number of answers to that, right? Because I'd like to believe universities have some deep impacts in a whole bunch of ways. The first and most obvious is that we are, um, we are the source of the skilled labor market of the next 50 years, right? And so from an economics point of view, um, if our students come out with the skills that they need to learn to compete, to do a good, to, to, to do well in careers and jobs, you know, that will indeed help drive the U.S. economy, skilled labor and, you know, ha having a workforce that, that can adapt to the sort of economic and social changes that are happening is deeply important. But, you know, we're a lot, a lot more than just the economic impacts of our students, um, I would like to believe that the whole point of a liberal arts education is not just preparing someone for the workforce, but preparing someone for life, um, preparing them to appreciate art and music, preparing them to be able to read interesting books, maybe far outside their field, to enjoy engaging in political discourse, to be part of their community, to think that volunteering and participation is important. And, you know, not every student leaves this campus with all of those things, <coughs> but, um, you know, preparing people to be citizens and, um, you know, both individuals who engage effectively with society and s as well as in their citizenship role is an important piece of this. And again, we have four years, at least for undergraduates, maybe five or so, um, of a time in life that are really quite important in shaping people's future. And um, making sure that they're ready to do that is deeply important. Having said that, that's not, a, you know, on the other hand, we're also a major research institution, right? And if you ask what is going to drive the success of this country in the long run, staying on the front edge of innovation and discovery is as important as anything. So, um, you know, it is the research institutions that do the basic science that 
you know, are behind, you know, what was in that microphone and what's in the phone you carry around in your pocket and what's in the GPS system in your car. Um, you know, this basic science from 30, 40, even 50 years ago that seemed to have no practical application whatsoever, but 40 and 50 years later has been absolutely central to some of these new technologies. And supporting that type of basic science, um, if we don't do it, we won't feel it next year. We might not even feel it 10 years from now, but we will feel it 30 or 40 years from now. And the long-run competitiveness of this nation is absolutely dependent upon having these groups of really smart scientists who sit around and occasionally stare at the wall and sort of think slightly wild things and say, well, let's try that out. Let's see why this is happening. Let's look at what's going on over here. And um, that is also very important. And so the combination of the educational role and the research role is important. Finally, I can't end without talking about the Wisconsin idea, right? <laughs> Which of course is that the university is not just about what it does in here, it's also about what it does out there. And um, I am very proud of the ways in which this university um, is active outside of the campus, whether it is you know, the large number of students through the Margaret Center for Public Service that are out volunteering, um, whether it is our medical school and the ways in which they go around the state um, with all sorts of resources and, and um, medical assistance, whether it's our English department that runs Shakespeare classes for high school students all over the state, um, or whether it's um, our extension service and our College of Agriculture, which is deeply engaged with businesses in the state. And you know, I, there's lots and lots of examples. I could go for a long time talking about that. But um, you know, yes, we have an enormous impact on the long term, but if we're doing our job right, we're also doing the outreach that means we have an impact today on the communities, particularly in this state, but also more broadly. Now we're going to get into some fun questions that might allow the audience to get to know you a little better. So if you have, what is your favorite Babcock ice cream flavor? Anything with chocolate. <laughs> so if you have... If, if you're going to get coffee at a coffee shop on or near campus, what's the one you choose? You know, I don't drink coffee, so okay. I almost never go to coffee shops. Um, I will tell you that I love Diet Coke, and I do stop at the Badger Market all the time to buy a Diet Coke. Does that help? <laughs> that, yeah, that's great insight. So do you have a favorite place to uh, get dinner or get food in, in Madison? You know, um, my husband and I do eat at the Cheris, particularly in the summertime quite often or stop by there in the evening, um, you know, go take a walk. Gosh, we just happen to be at the terrace. Let's sit down. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I love the There is no other university that I know, and I've been on a lot of campuses, that has a place that is as beautiful and that pulls in not just the students or the faculty and staff, but the whole community. And you sit there and you see old folks and you see kids and you see students on the computer and you see faculty arguing about things. It's just this, this wonderful mix of, you know, meeting place here in the area, and, and you know, even if I didn't like the food, I would come there just for the atmosphere. But, um, you know, that, that is definitely my favorite place to sit and eat and watch people. So, preference between Memorial Union and Union South? Oh, Memorial Union, because of the lakefront of the terrace. <laughs> Maybe not at 25 below, but... <laughs> On Saturdays when there isn't a Badger football game, mm -hmm. what's your favorite thing to do around the Madison area? Besides maybe go to the Union... Terrace. Well, yeah, I love to go to um, We do go to the farmer's market every Saturday morning, um, or at least whenever we don't have other commitments, and that is always fun, and we always buy more than we intended to because there's such good stuff there. Um, my husband and I are bicyclists, so um, we will often, particularly in the summertime, on a Saturday or Sunday, go off for a bike ride. Um, and, you know, there's such wonderful bike paths here. 
um, that's always a, a good way to spend time outside. Um, well, I worked at the Union. Um, obviously, it's beautiful to go look at the, the ice sometimes mm -hmm. um, in the winter as well. But what is your favorite summer memory? I know we've thrown a lot of great events uh, at the Union the last recent years. Um, I particularly liked uh, listening to open mic night. Those sometimes got quite interesting. Uh, but do you have any particular events that stuck out to you? At the um, let me think about that question for a while. Um, I tend to go to the Union and just hang rather than going for specific events. Or, you know, it's, in the, it's the winter time during the year that I'll often go to concerts or other things that are happening. I will tell you the memory that I have most recently that I just loved, and partly because it was, it was a surprise to everyone. It was just sort of one of those natural things that happens. Um, a year ago, um, I believe it was homecoming weekend, we had all of the alums in town. They, they come back for the Board of Visitors meetings, and we'd had a number of events that evening, and, and um, everyone had sort of poured out, and it was, a, it, for, it was like the early November, and I think it was 70 degrees outside. So everyone was outside, and the Alumni Park had just opened. So we were all supposed to go to Alumni Park, and then while we were at Alumni Park, fireworks suddenly started up. And none of us knew this, at least I didn't know this was coming. So everyone just stops and gathers and just stares at the fireworks and oohs and ahs. And, you know, it's just this completely mix of crowd of whoever happened to be at the Union at that point, just standing there and sort of all enjoying this together. And it was just a very lovely moment. Definitely. Yeah. I have one last question. Um, I think my question would be, it could even be a last question if you'd mm -hmm. like, um, any words of advice like the best words of advice that you could give to anyone that you could like would cross paths with? You mean for their future career, for their... <laughs> uh, you know, life, future career, whatever you... Life like coach, maybe. Yeah, yeah, there you go, life coach. I don't know. That's an interesting question. I mean, you know, I, I would say that, you know, find something that you love to do if you are fortunate enough to be able to do it and make money at it, right? <laughs> you know, there are people who simply don't have a choice. They do what yeah. they have to do to get by because of other commitments. But if you are so fortunate, and many of our students will be in their future life, um, to choose what you do, make sure it's something you love. Um, even if it changes over time, make sure, you know, you, you know, think, if you aren't loving what you're doing, think about what your other choices are and take a few risks to change that. The other thing I would say is that um, make sure you have a wonderful circle of friends because you know your work, your job, what you yourself do is never enough. And whether that is having a partner who is really supportive and who you care about, or just having a great group of friends who you can always go to, um, you know that's deeply important for life satisfaction. And um, don't get so caught up in work that you forget the friendships and and the partners. Great. Uh, it was great to sit down and have this conversation with you, Chancellor. Uh, we hope to continue conversations like this back at the Union and with further guests. Uh, special shout out to Dorm Room Studios for putting together our theme music and David <laughs> Lummis, our executive producer. And again, thank you to the Chancellor. Thank you. Fun.